Clubhouse. Welcome to Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home with your hosts, Beth Kushnick and Caroline Daly. Hey guys, welcome back to Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home. This is Caroline, and of course, we have our fabulous host, Beth Kushnick. Hi. Beth, how are you doing today? Good. I'm so excited that we're doing a special episode to end season four on the film Insidious that's opening in theaters today. Mm. I was in my AMC theater this week in Manhattan, and the poster for Insidious is there, and we're going to go see it. Where you're like, I did that. Yep. I love it. So, okay. Now, I know that you are not a big horror lover. So what in the world drew you to a movie like Insidious the Red Door? I really didn't know anything about the franchise when I got the call for this job. And I initially turned it down, you know, or said I wasn't interested in going further in the interview process. And I was going to take another job that uh, was being offered to me. And when I told my assistant set decorator and my crew uh, (laughs) that I turned down Insidious, they said, no, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) They had like a revolt, huh? (laughs) They had a revolt. They said, we're going to New Jersey to shoot Insidious because of the New Jersey tax incentives. And a lot of them are Jersey guys and they have kids and uh, are very well aware of this franchise, which I was not at all. So I watched a few Insidious films and called our guest, the fabulous production designer Adam Reamer back and said, I've had a change of mind. And would you <laughs> would you still allow me to interview for the film? It was interesting because I had never done a Zoom interview. That's wild. Through all of COVID, never had yep. to do a Zoom interview. Wow. No. I read the script and was talking with Adam and we had a real simpatico. I had never worked with him before, but I had a certain vision of one of the characters sets or location, but the fact that it was going to be something specific I had mentioned to him and, and he was like, you know, felt that it was an interesting take on it. Just, I think, which came from the fact that I didn't know the you know i wasn't close to the material so he and and patrick wilson our director who was also starred in former insidious movies and stars in this one i i think they were very close to the material so he thought i had an interesting take on it and we had a great conversation and and the deal was done i was i I was going to new jersey for the summer and doing a (laughs) horror movie your little bindle and it had like a two new jersey or bus kind of sign (laughs) yeah so this was like your first time or one of your first times working in new jersey that seems crazy to me i don't think uh i think it's been a good many years wow Um, 
definitely my first uh, foray into horror. Now, how did you do? Because I know that you're, you can be kind of a scaredy cat too, right? So how did you do with the ghoulishness of it all? As our listeners will hear in our interview with Adam, we worked really hard to maintain the dichotomy of the two worlds, you know, the very realistic world where you saw sets and locations that were dressed to a T. We didn't skimp anywhere making that world realistic, whether it was an old person's house or a college dorm room or, you know, any of the sets that we had to do. And then we went the same full out on the scary stuff. And uh, we had some issues to deal with for special effects and um, visual effects. We had some things that had been established in the prior films that were a part of the franchise. And we took all those elements. We had a lot of analysis and meetings. You know, I, I think back to my days on more serious jobs where we would have production meetings and art department meetings, you know, that were so intense. And I found myself sitting in those meetings about Lipstick, the one of the main creepy characters. And I think it got to a point where I realized... It wasn't just something to think of that's easier or didn't matter, that the work as a set decorator and the production designer's work really mattered for driving the horror in the story. You're braver than me, Beth. You're braver than me. I always tell myself that if I could see the sets and I could see everything, like, you know, not in the movie theater, but like just walk around the set, that I wouldn't be scared. Like I even asked the local haunted house place if they would let us come in with the lights on so i could like show my kids how it all worked and stuff so that it wouldn't be so scary i'm still scared i'm still scared that's well, how good you guys now are i know at this. the secret sauce so i'm gonna go to the movie theater and i am gonna watch my horror movie insidious the red door we have this amazing interview with adam reamer can you introduce him to our audience please so we have this wonderful interview coming up with Adam Reamer, production designer, who I had the pleasure of collaborating with on Insidious the Red Door, um, our first collaboration and hoping for many more. It was a great time and you'll love the interview and the movie. Joining us today is Adam Reamer, production designer for the newest installment of the Insidious horror franchise, Insidious The Red Door, which is out today in theaters everywhere. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you, our first production designer. Adam, before we get to Insidious, let's talk about your past and your story. Starting from the point where you earned your degree in architecture from Penn State, what path brought you to being a production designer on a horror film franchise that's earned over a billion dollars worldwide? Whew, it's been a long and winding road. Um, certainly not linear. I got my degree in architecture and I, I moved to New York. That was at Penn State. I moved to New York in 2001. After 9-11, the building economy had sort of shut down. There wasn't a lot of work in architecture. And I answered an ad in the New York Times for a set carpenter. Now, I had some carpentry experience, but had never worked on sets in particular. Um, but I wound up working at a, a set shop based in Brooklyn called Ready Set that was servicing the studio photography industry. 
And I worked there for a number of years, learned to build sets, scenic paint, took over managing that shop for several years. And that was kind of my intro to scenic design, the world of media. Um, I took a break from that. I did design build architecture for a couple of years. Then I was living in Portland, Oregon, and a TNT show came to town called Leverage, and they were looking for a set designer. And I was recommended just because I had, you know, some experience with scenery, some experience in architectural design, and wound up drafting sets for that show, and immediately just kind of fell in love with that world. And uh, from there, you know, it's just moved from show to show, and you know, started assistant art directing and art directing, and eventually production designing. So yeah, sort of like a, a collection of experiences, you know, on the periphery of the mm -hmm. film industry that eventually, you know, just through like a little bit of ambition and a lot of luck, I found myself working in television. Yeah, you've got to know all different aspects of design. We've done four seasons of the podcast talking about my work as a set decorator, but tell us more about the production designer's role and what you're responsible for. Sure. Well, I, I actually, I heard another production designer um, not too long ago describe the production designer as a scenic architect or an architect for film, which I kind of like because I have that piece of my background. Mm -hmm. But it's, aside from it being a design role, it's also very much a management role because there's a lot of different departments beneath me that are contributing to the overall look of the film. So I'm working with the director and the cinematographer most specifically to develop the look of the film and a, and a strategy for how we're going to shoot it, how we're going to tell the story. But then I have a set decoration department led by a set decorator like Beth, a property department, construction, paint, graphics, set design, special effects. And so it's, it's a lot of coordinating, as well as my own like art department staff with an art director who's sort of like my right-hand person. So a, a lot of the job is just coordinating uh, a lot of different elements towards a common goal of like, what is the vision for this project? What is the look of the project? Adam, before you started working on movies like 2021's The Voyeurs for Amazon or The Red Door, you worked on several TV shows like Don't Look Deeper, Pretty Little Liars, The Perfectionists, and The OA. Can you tell us a little bit about making that jump from TV to film and how the job that you do as a production designer changes? Or is it mostly the same? I mean, it's, it's similar in a lot of ways, except that the pace of episodic television is very fast you're continuously prepping to shoot an episode while you're filming an episode and it's nonstop back to back. So usually you have a lot less time in prep to really develop an approach to craft the sets. It can be a little bit factory production. It was a great learning environment because the show that I worked on for the longest was called Grimm. It was an NBC show that was sort of a mashup of a police procedural and a horror fantasy show that you know was inspired by Grimm's fairy tales. And the great benefit of that experience was that we were create, building a new world every week. There was so much variety to the types of sets and environments that we were creating that it really pushed me to develop a broad skill set and to think, you know, just much more broadly about design in general. Like a six-year crash course in every type of environment, interior, exterior, fantasy or not, that I might come across. And that was where I got my first production design credit, actually, was after art directing that show for four years, and I was bumped up to designer for the last two of it. As far as my transition from television to film, I definitely had aspired to get into film through those earlier years working in television. And I had done a, a series with a writer-director named Michael Mohan for Netflix called Everything Sucks. 
that was like a half hour format high school show set in the 90s. And when he brought his feature film, The Voyeurs, to Amazon, he brought me along with him as his designer. So that was really, it was just because of my relationship with Michael and having worked with him that I was able to get that first feature, which of course, like once you have that first feature, then it becomes, you know, a marketing tool for my representation to try to get me more of that type of project. And I haven't, since then, I haven't done any television. It's just been filmed since then. Well, Beth, I know that this is your first horror film with Insidious. It Tell is. me, Adam, is, isn't that so crazy? That seems so crazy to me because you've had such a wide variety of, of genres. It's true. I, I mean, that's what really made me want to do it. And also having this opportunity to work with Adam, I think the difference in TV series and films for the production designer set decorator relationship is on a TV series, the designer is always prepping and I'm sort of staying as the, the decorator with the shooters. So we have less time to interact. So this was really like my old days doing movies. We got to really dive in and also it helped to have time with Patrick, our, our director. That's so true, Beth, that like we actually, you and I lived in some of those spaces for days really finessing the look and that's something you can do in feature film where in, in television you're right i would be off scouting for the next episode right um while you were trying to get the set put together so what what about i mean both you guys tell me what was it like to work on a horror movie like this the actual true horror it sounds like grim was was kind of half and half but like this is full-on horror what was the big difference there what did you think to me, what was really interesting and, and sort of what we came to was that the realistic sets, you know, the houses, the school, the things that you would expect, dorm room, we really pushed the reality in those sets. And I think when it's time for the real horror of the scene, that's where we let loose and went crazy. But I think it's a really good balance. And the other thing that really interested me was that since this was such an iconic series, what could we bring set decorating wise, furniture wise, artwork wise from the prior films? Yeah, good point. You know, just like in terms of the pace or flow of story in horror, you're moving between moments of calm and then moments of scary, you know, and that's sort of like the roller coaster ride that the audience goes on. And I think horror films need that kind of rhythm, right, to sort of lull the, the audience into a place of comfort and then shock them with the horror. The same is true in the world that we create for that to happen is we need to create those in environments that feel normal so that when we do hit those scary moments, then they're that much more effective. I think some of the, some of the scariest moments, even reading the script, are in the more normal environments. Right. So you get that you, you get that contrast of, of what feels like it should be, uh, you know, someone just eating cereal in their living room that right. really t t takes a different direction very quickly. 
what was your general approach when you had your initial meetings with Patrick and design-wise? I, I mean, for us, it was also interesting time-wise. A lot of the decision-making in terms of what was going to be a location and what was going to be a set, that shifted in the prep process. It, Adam was so nimble in you know being able to both budget and design and then totally change direction. But what were some of the concepts that you brought to Patrick? Well, I think just right along the lines of what we were talking about, part of my process for all films is to really start with a pretty intuitive process of pulling images and even creating palettes of texture and color that are kind of, it's kind of what like I call squint colors, which is a scenic painter's term for when there's a bunch of colors and you squint your eyes and you try to find the average of them. And so I, I kind of like go through this exercise where I try to envision what is the squint color of the film? What's its feel in terms of color and texture? And so then I'll take, I'll take that palette and sort of see like how I can apply it. How, how does it apply globally to the project? How can I apply it more specifically to certain characters? or environments. And so really the communication of that concept is all done visually because I put together a lookbook of images and palettes that really try to describe in a, in a, a more general way what I think the, the visual feel of the picture should be. To tack on to what you said earlier, it also, the process also began with an analysis of the previous films and figuring out what worked and what needed to be brought into this film to kind of keep the consistency of the of the story world versus where were places that because of character development or story development needed to deviate from that we were lucky in terms of this film because in terms of the budget and I think also the expectation and having Patrick as the director, it was a much more elevated attempt that we made. You know, it was decided that the the look really had to support the script and tell the story in, I think, a, a more elevated way than it had been in the past. You know, this franchise, like like many of the horror franchises, especially at Blumhouse, they start as very micro-budget projects. And it's really story, and it's really what the, the actor, director, and writer are kind of bringing in concept. That's the strength of the film. And production design may not be as important of an element or doesn't quite get the resources on a project of that scale. And once you know, you're in your fifth movie and the budget's a lot bigger, there's an expectation across the board that you can elevate the subject material by supporting it with the design. You had mentioned that you know we had to we had to pivot quite a bit in prep uh, between what was a location and what was a, a stage build, which is always challenging, especially like you know you have a limited amount of time to put this thing together, and um, when you have to make big changes midway. So we had intended on building a lot more of the sets on our sound stage. Unfortunately, that didn't quite work out financially. Um, for the overall project, and so we had to pivot to doing a lot more on location. And I think like the it, it, it's a challenge for sure, but in a way, you know, sometimes limiting factors can really help you to narrow the focus yeah. of your concept of your design. And at a certain point when we realize, okay, we're not going to build all of these sets. We don't have total creative control over them. Let's find pieces that work for us. And then those pieces inform the total picture. 
You know, once you start to like put some puzzle pieces in place and say, okay, this is a look that we have to embrace. This is a color we have to embrace. And and I think it's hard sometimes for other members of the crew, from DP to director even, to feel confident visually that that's going to work, that we can create the match, that we can do what, you know, the magic that we do. But you were really good at convincing everybody. <laughs> A great example of that was the art studio. It was the sort of the most beautiful old building on the Drew campus that was sort of a, a gothic stone building. And um, it was the favorite building on campus of our director, Patrick. He had to have it in the movie, but there wasn't really a place for it to make sense in the movie. And upstairs, there's this giant hall with, you know, two stories tall with enormous, intricate lead glass windows and these big decorative wood beams. And I kind of thought maybe we could make the art studio in this space. It was a strange place to have an art studio, right? So it was like, in reality, it was a bit of a stretch, but I felt like conceptually we could do something really impactful in this space and really make it special. And the the character Dalton, the son of the family who's gone off to college, he's studying art. So this was a really important set where he's interacting with his art instructor and he's developing his own artworks that really are fueling the story movement through like, you know, his subconscious coming out onto the page. So we wound up with what could have been a very bland box of a art studio with white walls. And instead we had something that was architecturally rich and grand and even had that sort of spookiness of sort of, sort of old Gothic architecture. One of my favorite sets in, to dress in the, in the film and considering all those elements and that it was so large, we, we did need some artist racks and some bigger pieces to push the storyline there um but it it was something that would never have been an art studio and on any campus and we adam both um made it smaller by building out a wall and we also put set dressing in that worked for the size of the room I think it was really successful in the end. I think, you know, it, it photographed really well and it adds a drama to those moments of the story that you just wouldn't get out of a traditional college art studio. It certainly sounds like this was a favorite set of both of y'all's. Is is that true? Would you say that this was this was in, within this film, this set was like the one that really drew you guys? That was the most authentic, realistic set, non-scary. But the scary set was our favorite and all yeah. of these locations had no air conditioning so oh my gosh on top, on <laughs> they're all the, scary sets then they're for all me. scary sets <laughs> yes that's, that's i think i mean. almost died of heat exhaustion it, one day when we were he did. working we, in the we, lair yes in the in the lair which we were dressing on a uh like an attic kind of floor I don't know. It was over a hundred degrees in there, and we we almost we almost a scary thing lost Adam that day. Oh no! Oh goodness! You guys must run into so many crazy like we've got to figure this out kind of issues that come along. Were there any in this project that made you guys be like, "Oh my god, this is so crazy," but we can fix it? All of them. <laughs> yeah, you but say I think that every I, time. I, I think that that location specifically the. 
which um, the set was Lipstick's Lair. This is the, the, the lair of the key monster villain of the franchise. And this was a favorite set. It was, it was challenging for a number of reasons. One is that the set was already established in the first movie, but there wasn't any way that we could realistically recreate the exact set, which was shot in a location in Los Angeles that doesn't even exist anymore. At first, the, the approach was like, well, how do we sort of cheat this location to be that original location? And the more we got into it, the more we realized there's there's no merit in trying to recreate that. We can do something way better. Now, Lipstick got new digs. Lipstick got new digs. And, you know, we, we were able to really elevate the design of that space while still, uh, like we spoke about earlier, still pulling threads from that original set through in terms of, like, the colors of, like, red drapery and sculptural objects and chandeliers but it was sort of our, our own version of it. So it was, it was very challenging to find the tone of that space in its new incarnation, but also it was like the most rewarding, I think, to take something that had been established as early as that little first movie and make it really a new, grand, beautiful, terrifying space. If you take the scariness out of it, it's so cinematic and really gorgeous. You know, it's, it's, creepy but it's a beautiful set in a location that really worked i super get it when you guys say that like the more normal the set the scarier the happening actually was mm -hmm. because it i mean i imagine for the audience that must feel like then it could happen when i'm walking down the street or when i'm just in my normal <laughs> like you said of eating course. my breakfast you know that kind of thing mm -hmm. that location which was also on the drew campus the building is called seminary hall it's the seminary school or was of the college it was essentially a, a chapel with vaulted ceilings and a, a balcony and incredible woodwork and big tall windows and we had a lot of limitations on the, the the biggest challenge i think was was that we realized very late in the game that we only had a couple of days to prep this location well we needed two weeks to prep this location that's Isn't how that big always the transformation the way, you guys it is <laughs> every time it's like we need two weeks you have two days <laughs> yeah and it, it very nearly crushed the whole concept luckily with help from production and locations and flexibility from my team and beth's team we managed to like sneak in there for half a day here half a day there do what we could and over the course of weeks like gradually get it there so that when we had that final push of a couple of days it was still a big push but we'd done everything we could to lay the groundwork but it, that's always more difficult too you're splitting crews from this place to that place and doing partial work and um, you know how you know, set really decoration is always planning. like the last line of defense <laughs> i i honestly felt when we were in there you know because my team was basically waiting for construction and scenic i honestly had that twinge of a panic that we weren't going to make it but in the end i remember Beth, you always do make it no always. i know i know but you know, it's I, true but it doesn't it doesn't it make it easier it, no huh? no i yeah. honestly yeah. like in my bones i felt like this isn't happening while oh i was down the hall mutilating doll heads you know, <laughs> oh as, my as my contribution to it's my like craft you're like more doll me and my teamster who's a Absolutely. big fan of the the insidious we drove around with a scary doll life-size doll in our car during this job <laughs> 
Okay, yeah, I will yeah. say, I think, like, the heat may have only been a contributing factor to, to my near death. There might have That's been right. some, sleep, some sleeplessness <laughs> and a high degree of stress. <laughs> Anxiety, and... <laughs> just a full panic attack. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, are there some things that I, when I'm watching the show, when I get brave enough to turn this on or go to the theater and see either one, is there something I should be looking out for? Is there something that gives us a little tidbit of something that, that as the audience we can say, oh, they said that on the podcast and I totally saw it in the film. Is there anything in there we should be looking for? Well, I did have uh, an artist recreate some of the artwork that were, was in the earlier Insidious movies. And both Patrick and our producer were like shocked, you know, said, where, where did you get that? It was great. It, it made it feel like home. Yeah, I, I would say like, you know, when you see a set like the, the art classroom, realize that that was sort of an empty ballroom yes, nothing. on a second floor, you know, like look at, look at everything behind the decoration and the scenery and realize that that was nothing even remotely resembling an art student for again, or look at the lair and realize that it was a church <laughs> that now has a full proscenium stage with, you know, curtains all around and a antique backdrop and, you know, all of these great old antique props and lighting equipment and, and creepy um, mannequins creepy mannequins <laughs> i think that's a that's galore that's, yeah that's totally unnecessary it, it, all, all mannequins are creepy no we just say mannequins no <laughs> pretty much no, <laughs> they're all disgusting creepy. and scary we, we, we painted them and made them extra cre creepy yeah these are next level oh my god next level creepy am i even ready for this i don't know if i am i have to know okay just to gauge how scary how okay what's your favorite horror movie adam do you have one Oh, jeez. Um, of course, you cannot say Insidious the Red Door. Obviously, no, that's so your favorite. Like, but... A favorite classic horror movie for me is actually The Shining. Ooh, that's a goodie. And Very a favorite, good. more recent one would be The Witch. Oh, I haven't seen The Witch. You recommend? Very much so. Nice. Beth, what about you? Do you actually watch any or no, can you handle no, it? No, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> What's as scary as you go? Wrong. I, I would say something like The Shining. Yes, I've yeah. seen that. Okay, help me out. Um, okay, I'm going to tell you guys this. So no, for oh, me, wait, I got it. The, go the James Caan, Kathy Bates. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, um, uh, oh, my God. Stephen King. Misery. 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. Dad Deliverance is, a is scary, scary in a whole different yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, it's totally yeah. That's a that's a different vibe altogether. It's a different vibe. But yeah, misery. No, you're right. And and you're right. The more normal, just in a woman's right. house. Yep. You know, and yet you don't know what is like hidden in there. <laughs> yeah. Creepy you I, I really like like um Ari Aster who did um the director who did Hereditary and Midsummer. Um, I really enjoy his his particular flavor of horror, and uh, Robert Eggers. He did The Witch. He's done some other uh, kind of creepy movies. Like those are those are two of my favorite um, in the horror genre these days. All right, you guys. Here's a recommendation: The Third Day with Jude Law. Whoa, this was so crazy. It was a several day kind of, um, which sounds funny to say cause it's called the third day, but it was like a like they showed like on different nights they were showing different things. They had like a live portion, a whole live portion where they were filming it and the audience was in on it for like, it was like 12 hours or something like that. It was crazy. Somehow in the pod clubhouse pool, I pulled like the 4 a.m. shift. So I was watching <laughs> the scariest 
part alone on a couch, just like, oh, like who's next to cover this? Because it was so scary for me. But man, again, same kind of stuff, like normal town, normal stuff, but then creepy business. And you're like, oh, that's what makes it so scary. Mm, sounds good. You know, one thing I think about horror film fans, they're really devoted. I think they're really adept at finding those little Easter eggs everywhere and making the connections from one film to the next in a franchise. So Absolutely. I, I, yeah. I think that's going to happen a lot for them in Insidious 5. Yeah, we definitely peppered Easter eggs throughout, whether that's artwork or, or small props, things like that. That's fun. So listeners, you guys definitely look out for those because that's like the most fun when you can be like on a scavenger hunt. It probably makes it a little less scary for people like me. Right. If I'm looking for the artwork. <laughs> So full disclosure, you guys, I'm a giant scaredy cat. So I'm going to ask you guys about the secret in the sauce about how you guys take these different elements and pull the audience in for a scare. Like how you kind of maybe as I as as a watcher can prep myself a little bit if I have some sort of clue in that like, okay, this is how the environment might look. And then I know something scary is going to happen. It sounds to me like you guys played on that quite a bit. I would say that you're certainly not going to miss any of the scare um but <laughs> there's there's really a balance of light colors and a sort of normalcy in many of the scenes and then when you go through the red door it's hit hard so um <laughs> it, it, we we had the most fun i think when we went full out for sure the crafting of the scares really happens in direction and performance and editing more than anything. Right. We give them the whole scary enchilada and they just choose what they're going to look at and what they're going to focus on. But we, we filled it up. A lot of that is like, is Beth and I giving them the best tools to make that happen on the day even so that they have the right kinds of practical lights in a set to create a mood that's going to leave, you know, dark sort of mysterious corners or highlight certain things. And that's so important to mood, giving the, the gaffer and the cinematographer a lot of lighting tools, even in how we treat windows with blinds or shears or drapes, where you can get a little bit of movement or slats of light. All of these things kind of contribute to creating that environment of the scare. And it's the, the technicians on set who are employing those to like really fine tune, you know, how it plays out. All right. So one of our favorite topics over the years is when a project shoots on location and we've gotten a chance to talk to some location scouts. And we understand that Insidious, the Red Door, shot in Morristown, New Jersey. Tell us a little bit about that location work. Which is crazy to me. My sister lives like next door in Florham Park, so that's funny. And my my parents live in Convent Station, which is also oh, I love it. Morristown adjacent. <laughs> so I was pretty familiar with the area already. A lot of the story takes place at an East Coast or a, a, a Northeast College of you know not it's not exactly clear geographically where it is, but it just sort of has that Northeast vibe. And so we drew University in Madison was sort of like the core of that. And we, we got a lot of our locations there, some for the school and some some otherwise. But I think the look of the, you know, even the residential architecture surrounding that area, a lot of it has like a very sort of typical uh, Northeast look, which worked. 
Um, the trickier thing was that we also had two locations, interior and exterior, that were back in the original home of the series, which is, you know, Southern California area. So finding a townhouse that could kind of fit that mold and also um, another house for the character Renee was a little trickier. But, you but all in it. all, I think it was, yeah. we did it. We did it. And uh, yeah, we found we found some good stuff. And I, I think it worked. I think we were able to really, you know, play those two different kinds of looks off of each other and not feel like we were, you know, all in the same geographical place. And we added some greens and a lot of greens, actually, which yeah, made a, a difference. And yeah. the, then we were on the stage also. So it was like a summer job on location because it's far where we were. Right. And we had a lot of matching and things that we did on the stage in New Jersey, thanks to the New Jersey tax credits. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, my first job in New Jersey as well. First horror film, first job in Jersey. Wow. That seems wow. insane, Beth. How did, how did that happen? <laughs> You're like, oh, it's so far. I was so lucky to find that because it was a very busy time for production in New York and New Jersey when we started up in June or July of last year. And I was really fortunate to find Beth, who's so experienced, has an amazing team, knows every resource, has relationships with every vendor. You know, I was really glad I was able to bring her in. And it doesn't matter if it's your first horror film or not. If you're, you know, you got the resources, you got the team, you got the know-how and the experience. I find I found the creepy stuff. It all stuff. comes together. <laughs> Yeah, we, we, really, yeah. <laughs> we really had such a good time. I mean, my whole entire team was, it, it really makes a difference when everyone is just so into it. They're into it. Their kids are into it. You know, it's it's quite the franchise. Yeah, and I, I remember you telling me when we first met that you weren't sure if you wanted to take a project at the time, but you told your crew what it was, and they said, we have to do it. I actually <laughs> did have a, another offer at the time, and I had decided to take that job, and I told my crew, and they said, no way, we're doing Insidious. <laughs> <laughs> they said, much, huh? we're only coming with you if you take Insidious. And, yeah, and yeah. I, too, am a scaredy cat and had never oh, no. seen any of the prior Insidious films. So I sat down and had an Insidious marathon. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Speaking of which, Blumhouse, uh, one of the producing companies on the film, has certainly figured out the genre of horror. Yeah, you know, I think that specialization certainly helps, you know, that they, they kept the, their, their genre scope small um, and really tried to perfect that one thing rather than having more diversified types of programming. Blumhouse started with very micro-budget films, Um, like we talked about earlier, and it was really about finding those good stories with good writer-director-performer combos that brought concept. And now that they've grown and we're, you know, doing projects on a larger scale, there's still sort of that commitment to, to real stories within genre. So even though it's all horror, I think there's often like a lot of really interesting subtext, be that, you know, sort of social or uh, familial, like in Insidious, it's it's a like horror the family movie, relationship, the father son dynamic. Yeah, it's it's really about family conflict and how you know how we 
um, suppress our demons or how they, you know, our metaphorical demons and, and they surface and we learn to live with them. Um, and I think that's sort of like, I think that's something, something that Blumhouse has done well is like finding those stories that are genre horror, but have a deeper level of meaning. And then they give a lot of creative control to their writers, directors. So the concept is not watered down by too much committee decision-making. I think also the actors really feel it because they all seem to come back for more. So I I think they, interestingly enough, establish, I mean, a a five-movie franchise with Insidious, uh, and now with Patrick directing, it's a big jump in development of characters. It's not that common that you have a, a franchise that runs for so long and maintains audience interest. So often it's like, oh, the first one was good and then whatever. But uh, Blumhouse has had more than one franchise where, you know, people say, you know, I don't love that first Insidious. They say, I love Insidious or right. Purge or whatever it is. They, they've managed to, you know, maintain a level of quality and interest and, and fan base in these longer running franchises. Well, Insidious the Red Door is going to be the most popular one. <laughs> I, think, I think so. I- love that and i know just by talking to the two of you guys how much tlc went into this one it sounds like you guys really went the extra mile which i think audiences are going to appreciate especially those easter eggs people love that absolutely there was a lot of passion a lot of collaboration and um i I think in the end uh we did some did some beautiful work yeah and and these days beth i feel like we talk a lot about like professionalism it sounds like you guys work together fabulously which is wonderful that doesn't always happen right Absolutely. It was a great collaboration, and we're going to do it again. Absolutely. Awesome. We are right, very so fortunate to have a crew ahead. across the board. Um, you know, all aspects of our crew just worked well together. And that's the best when, you know, the, the workplace is not conflict or strife, but, you know, just sort of collective creative energy. Um, you get your best work that way. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. If people want to follow you on social media or the internet, where can they find you? Uh, they can find my website is reamerdesign.com. Um, and my personal slash professional Instagram is at AJ Reamer. Thank you so much. Adam, thank you so much. Yay, we're so glad we got to talk to you. And we're so excited for all of you guys who are listening. Please make sure you head to the movie theaters as soon as you're done listening to this episode because Insidious the Red Door, rated PG-13, is out today, July 7th, only in movie theaters. So get out there, get your popcorn, enjoy, bring your blanket. It's always chilly inside. Thanks so much, Adam. Thank you. Thank you so much to Adam for joining us today. Uh, We hope that you enjoyed this special episode of the fourth season of Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home. Thank you so much to Adam. And again, Insidious, The Red Door is rated PG-13 and is out today, July 7th, only in movie theaters. That's going to do it for this episode. And thank you all for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home at Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave it a five-star review. It helps a lot in the promotion of the show. Five stars, people. Thanks for listening. Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home is an original Pod Clubhouse production. Recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, please visit us online at podclubhouse.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Decorating the Set at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.